Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. This is episode 13 of the Liberty Cafe, and I'm really glad that you're with me. Today we're going to talk about civil government, the role of civil government from a biblical perspective. During this COVID-19 panic, I've had a lot of opportunity to talk with other Christians about the role of government. Some of us have taken exception that governors and mayors and county judges and the like shutting down the entire economy. We, we, we do it from a biblical perspective, from a liberty perspective, but of course we also do it from the perspective that it's causing great harm throughout the world. And so we've had this conversation and some people don't have a problem with it. They see government as being able to do pretty much whatever it wants to do. I had one friend who when I asked him to, to point out where in scripture government has authority to do things like provide welfare for the poor, prohibit people from having surgery, building roads, etc. He, he said that that's a really bad presupposition that comes with that question, that there's this some sort of regulative principle for all of life, and that while Reformed people and most Christians have, think that there's a regulative principle for worship, there's not one for anything else. Well, I, I think this is gets it totally wrong. Uh, but it's typical because a lot of Christians have fallen into the modern conceit, I guess you will, that that civil government gets to do pretty much whatever it wants to do because there's real no limits on it in the Bible. And I think that's mistaken for a number of reasons, and we're going to go through those right here. I, I, I want to go through today what I think is the biblical perspective on the role of civil government, where its authority lies, and we're going to look at that in, in several different areas. So, Let's get started with that. The first thing I want to do to see the role and the scope and, and the limits on civil government is look at the authority of other spheres of government. Today, when we say government, we automatically go to civil government. But civil government is just one of four different types of government that God has ordained. Right? There's individual government, there's family government, there's church government, and there's civil government. And each one of those governments is designed to operate in certain spheres of God's creation. And it creates a lot of problems when one type of government starts operating in the sphere or where another government has responsibilities. Let's look at individual government, for instance. So Individual government is really mainly what we would call self-control. Look at Psalm 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. There's all different kinds of places where we can see that happen, where people, individuals, and collections of people live without self-control, and things start falling apart. Uh, an addict does that. 
uh, our society actually today is a pretty good example of that too. Um, and it's really important to note that the self-control is something that was supposed to come from within. There was no cherubim with a flaming sword when God put man in the garden. He expected man to exhibit the self-control. So we have to be careful when we start trying to impose self-control from the outside. Perfect examples of this is where civil government steps over into the role of individual government. Are examples like anti-discrimination laws where the government says, well, you can't not like this person. And you can't discriminate against this person by not letting them into your restaurant or not letting them into your bar or into your business. Uh, they, they also I mean, want to tell us sometimes what we are supposed to eat and drink. Like in New York City, where the mayor was banning large sizes of, of sodas because that was bad for people to drink. What we need to do is the government needs to get out of those areas and allow people to do what they ought to do. Now, people shouldn't discriminate against somebody because of a lot of reasons, the color of their skin, for instance. There are other reasons to discriminate against somebody. If somebody's acting in some way which is dangerous or harmful or even saying things that you don't want your children to hear, it's okay to discriminate against them. But again, that's an internal thing. That's where that needs to lie. The second limit on government is family government. Family government is set up where the, the, the husband is the head of a family. His wife and his children are to submit to him just as the church submits to Christ. And so the, this family governance, uh, along with self-governance, is, is how disciples were to originally be raised and order kept throughout the unfallen world as human populations grew from two to billions in pursuit of fulfilling the cultural mandate. Of course, we sinned, and that caused a lot of problems with that. But what it didn't do is bring to an end either family government or the cultural mandate. And so families are really, in modern parlance, much like the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Families are responsible for taking care of our health, our education, and our general welfare. Like education is not something that the government should be doing. It's the responsibility of parents, not of non-parents. Then that doesn't mean that parents can't group together and build schools. That's perfectly okay. But it's not something that the government should do is take our money and then put up schools and then put our kids in them, compel us to put our schools kids in them, and basically take that responsibility away from parents. So that's another area of conflict and a limit on civil government. Finally, there's church government. Church government's role is to watch over the spiritual condition of the people of God and to bring in those who are outside the church. And so it's it's a gospel-oriented type of government to proclaim the world to the nations and then govern over those who come in by the call of Christ to the church. But of course, we've seen lots of 
times in the past where civil government has not respected those boundaries either. And of course, we saw that a lot in the Middle Ages where the government, often at the invitation of the church, used the steel sword to enforce the spiritual beliefs, the religion of people, often by chopping off their head or burning them at the stake if they had what the government or the particular church there felt was the wrong beliefs about God. So let's move into the next section of limits on government and what spells out the roles of civil government. And that's on the requirements of rulers. Deuteronomy makes it very clear that all rulers in government are to obey all the law of God. Let me read this passage from Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes. Not a lot of wiggle room in there. And this requirement on rulers did not go away just because Jesus came. Rulers are under this requirement today just like they were in the days when it was written. And there's two types of law here that apply to government rulers, civil rulers. One is the general law that applies to them just like everybody else. The other are laws specific to rulers. So let's just take a quick look here at some of the general laws, like the Ten Commandments that apply to rulers. They're not to steal. Kings don't steal. People don't steal. There's no putting other gods before them, like the government, which is happening more and more these days. Uh, there's to be no murdering. You're not supposed to oppress your neighbor or rob him. Uh, the wages of the hired worker shall, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You pay him the day they work. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. That last bit's out of Leviticus 19. Those general requirements and others apply to rulers just as much as they do to individual citizens. Then there are the specific laws that apply to rulers. For instance, in Romans 13, we see that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, and that rulers are God's servant for your good, the good of the people. We see in Psalm 2 that rulers are to serve the Lord with fear, and they are to kiss the Son. Over in Jeremiah 21, rulers are required to execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. But they are not to build his house by unrighteousness or his upper rooms by injustice or make his neighbor serve him for nothing and not to give him his wages. And then in Deuteronomy 17, we see that rulers are not to acquire many horses for himself or wives, 
or excessive silver and gold. Now we'll leave the application of those laws to another day, but I think it's pretty clear that rulers here have a lot of limits on them, a lot of requirements of them, and those limits and requirements apply to civil government, all of civil government, just like it does its rulers. Let's move on to the role of the law. It's not just the specific concepts of the law. This is, let's move on to the role of the law. It's not just the specific requirements of the law that the government is supposed to adhere to, but it, it's the, the general role of the law, the flavor of the law, how it works. And, and let's look at two different aspects of that. First of all, the law is supposed to draw people to righteousness. We see this in Deuteronomy 4, where it says that, where Moses says, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So the rules and laws that a governor and a government adopts should be seen by those around them as wise and understanding. I'd suggest you that to you today that perhaps the rules that govern a lot of Austin, Texas today are not seen that way, at least by people who have common sense uh, or a biblical understanding of the way things should be. The law is also supposed to drive, not just draw people to righteousness, the law is not only supposed to just draw people to righteousness, but it's supposed to drive people to righteousness. That's what we see from Paul in Galatians 3.24, where he says that the law is given as a schoolmaster to drive Israel to Christ. That requirement is the same today as it was back then. But what happened back in those days was that the Pharisees got a hold of God's good law and corrupted it and used it not to drive people to Jesus Christ, but to drive it to external obedience. That if you could just obey all these different laws and all these different rules and all these different activities, that that is what would bring you close to God. But of course, that's not the case. We can never be obedient enough because of our sinful nature to come close to God. Instead, it's only through Jesus Christ. And the law is designed to show us our need for him and push us toward him. But the Pharisees messed that up, and so does most of the law that we have today. Today, the laws of the United States are, are pharisaical. They attempt to regulate every single aspect of what we are and what we do. And it's just wrong. It's taking us away from Jesus Christ and, again, towards this external obedience. So there's another limit on civil government what they can do and what they can require of us. The next area of civil government responsibilities and limits 
is from what I'd call the, the purpose of government. It's really which stems from the purpose of people. We see in Genesis 2 that when the earth was barren, God created this beautiful, lush Garden of Eden. And then he took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This was because God created the earth to be the dwelling place of God with man. And, and we saw that the Garden of Eden was suitable for this, the garden that God had constructed, because he did come and dwell with man there. He walked in the garden with man. But that wasn't the goal of God. The goal was to have the whole earth as his dwelling place of himself with us. But he wasn't going to do the work. He called us to do the work. Where he built the garden, he called us to build out all the earth. And so we are supposed to go out there and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as we are to prepare the earth as a dwelling place for God and man, among other things, this means that we are supposed to make the world a place of plenty and prosperity, and we are also to make the world filled with people who love God. Now, of course, we failed in that, but Christ came and died for us and stands in our place so that through him and by him and with him, we are still up to this task. And it's not just us as individuals. It's this role and this task has been given to all authorities that God has set in place. The individual, the family, the church, and the civil government. Nobody gets a pass on this, even unbelievers. Now, unbelieving civil servants, rulers, are not likely to want to fulfill this or even to try and fulfill this, but still they are required to, and judgment will come upon them as they fail to do that. So this is the next to last of the, the limits on civil government and helping us understand the, the purposes of gov civil government. Finally, I want to bring us to the kingship of Christ. So let's look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples right before he went up into heaven. So who is this Jesus who gave this commandment to his disciples? Well, he is the king of all creation. As we see in Psalm chapter 2, God says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hell. He goes on to say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Back in Matthew 28, we saw that all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to Jesus. Jesus is the ruler of rulers. Every civil government ruler, whether it's a king, a president, a governor, a policeman, a bureaucrat, whoever it is, is under the authority of Jesus Christ. They are responsible for not just obeying him, but for helping him complete the work that he came here to do, helping him to complete the application of his work on a cross to all of creation, helping him to make all things new. And one of those things he came to do was to do what we failed to do, make earth like heaven. That's why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just like the Garden of Eden was a reflection of heaven right here on earth, so we are to make that rest of the earth reflect heaven as well. Again, the nation rulers are required to do this, their part in bringing all this to pass. There's a lot of responsibilities there, but one of those is to reflect the kingship of Christ upon whose shoulders the government of all the world rests. And what does his kingship look like? Well, I'd suggest more than anything, his is a kingship of liberty. Let's look at Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, when I talk to some of my Christian friends about this, they accuse me of conflating Christian liberty with secular liberty or economic liberty or liberty under government. But I promise you, I, I tell them this, but often they don't believe me. But I, I'm telling you that I'm not doing that here. Man cannot bring that kind of liberty to other man. Only Jesus can do that. No government ruler can do that. But what a government ruler can do is reflect the liberty and the kingship of Christ in his or her kingship. And a ruler whose kingship looks more like oppression than liberty is not doing his job. Well, that's the final aspect I wanted to talk about of uh, the biblical limits on government and the biblical purposes of government. And I'll just close by saying that, like it or not, God's authority delegated to man always comes with specific responsibilities and limits. And that's true for the simple fact because we are created and limited and he is not. And this fact is as true for rulers as it is for everyone else. Thank you for being with me on the Liberty Cafe today.